here we are 20 years later with this huge amount of uh, access disparities, poor value. The market's not going to fix us. The government has to step in and do this. Welcome to episode 196 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. For decades, we have relied on the private market to build, expand, and upgrade internet infrastructure across the U.S. As a result, there are locations, especially in rural America, that are unserved or grossly underserved. Fred Pilot, the author of Service Unavailable, America's Telecommunications Infrastructure Crisis, visits with us this week. He's been studying the problem for years, and he talks with Chris about his plan for government investment on a large scale. The plan is to get U.S. household connectivity back up to speed. You can purchase Fred's ebook at bookbaby.com, but also be sure to check out his blog at eldotelecom.blogspot.com. He reports on telecommunications infrastructure issues and offers news, analysis, and information on policy developments. Now here are Chris and Fred Pilot, author and blogger, talking about telecommunications infrastructure in the U.S. and Fred's ideas to use a different model toward ubiquitous connectivity. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Fred Pilot author and blogger, uh, just published the book, Service Unavailable. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. That's Service Unavailable, America's Telecommunications Infrastructure Crisis. Thank you. I didn't include the full title in my notes, and so I, uh, I'm glad you were able to plug it entirely, and we'll remind people later um, when we tell them where they can find it. But let's start off with you. How did you come to be someone interested in this and writing about it? Well, I had been writing about this issue for 10 years almost when I started writing the book last year. I started my blog, Eldotelcom, at blogspot.com in uh, 2006, I believe, early 2006. And I originally started writing about this issue with a very local concern because uh, the availability of uh, internet-based telecommunications was very poor in my area. And I had tried to order through multiple means and couldn't order service. And I thought, well, maybe this is a local problem. Is this something unique to my county? And so I started blogging about it. And the more I uh, researched and wrote about this issue, the more I found that, no, it wasn't a local issue. It wasn't anything unique to my county. It was occurring occurring all over the United States and actually other parts of the world. We didn't have a telecommunications infrastructure that evolved to this new medium of the internet. And tell me, where where are you? I'm in uh, El Dorado County, California, which is uh, midway between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And that's a pretty rural area. It's quasi-rural. Parts of the county are very rural. I'm in a what I would consider a quasi-rural area. Population density is about 400 people per square mile. So when you describe uh, the United States as having not upgraded the infrastructure, uh, tell me a little bit more about what you mean specifically about that. Yeah, what I mean is uh, we knew a generation ago that telecommunications was going to go internet, IP-based telecommunications. What we didn't do is, is upgrade our infrastructure to support that, and the logical upgrade was fiber to the premise. In fact, some of the 
telcos were actually planning to do that, to do fiber to the premise. SBC was one of them. I think uh, a couple of others were also looking at doing that. Uh, but but we didn't do that. We didn't do the uh, the upgrade and the modernization of the infrastructure to fiber to the premise. We left in place a legacy metal wire-based system that supported voice telephone service for the telcos and cable TV service for the cable companies. What we need is a fiber-to-the-premise infrastructure to deliver Internet service both now and also that has the capacity to support new services that are Internet-based that are coming on in the future. I was struck by your description. Um, In an early part of the book, you write, For nearly every American who has been alive since the end of World War II, the availability of telephone service at a home or business premise is taken for granted. Need a phone line or several lines? Contact the phone company, order them, and they'll get hooked up. That's not what we see anymore. I mean, that's actually not even true for telephone service in many states anymore. How did, how did we get here? Well, we've lost the, uh, the principle of universal service. Uh, that was a, a great principle. I think the FCC has, has tried to go back to it last year with its open Internet rulemaking in 2015, classifying Internet service as a common carrier telecommunications utility. However, uh, we don't have that in reality, and we probably should have had that policy in place 20 years ago, but we didn't. Uh, Here we have it in 2015 with some period in the 2000s where uh, it wasn't even considered a a telecommunications service. It was considered an information service. So uh, we've lost sight of, of uh, of the view of telecommunications as an essential essential utility that should be available to to every American, no matter where they make their home or their business. Well, and this is where I think I see you most often on Twitter uh, and in your blog posts. Um, I, you know, I, I suspect you would identify the the problem where we've sort of lost our way was when we began to think that competition would solve all of our problems. Well, that was yeah. We we had this this delusional thinking. I like to refer to it that well, this is the internet is such a cool new thing that. It'll just technologically, like magic, we'll all have these these cool, uh, wonderful internet services, and we'll just let the let the market uh, figure out how to deliver those. Well, it, w- it was very sloppy thinking because in order to deliver those services, there has to be an infrastructure to do that. Well, the the planning wasn't there. We just kind of thought that well, we'll just let the market provide provide the solution. Well, it can't because it's the the cost of the infrastructure is so great that um, a technological market based approach isn't going to address that. It has to actually be built. Lots of money has to be invested and we haven't we haven't done that. That's true. I think one of the things that I might press you on is that I think the people who were designing and, and ultimately passed the 1996 Telecommunications Act, um, they didn't just think competition would happen. I mean, they, they perhaps over-forecast the, um, the availability of rivals. But I think they also expected that the telephone company, certainly, and depending on who you ask, the cable company as well, um, that they would be a, the medium for a lot of competition because you would have multiple carriers sharing that infrastructure. 
And what I would say is that they did not anticipate the power of the telephone and cable companies to change that by uh, by lobbying, by filing court cases, by the revolving door at the FCC. I mean, all of these things that I think you probably know better than me. But but am I missing something in, in thinking of it in those terms? You mean the power of the incumbents in terms of controlling that infrastructure? Yeah, definitely. It's it's a monopoly infrastructure. They're going to do everything they can to defend that from interlopers as they see them. They don't they don't want anybody on their pipes as uh what was the AT&T uh, CEO that referred to them Edward forget his last name but he said, you know, they're they're going to have to pay to get on our pipes. He didn't want them on there. Yes, and I can't remember his name either, but he was then tapped to re- help GM. Um, yeah, Whitaker, exactly. Whitaker, I believe. That's right, Whit- Whitaker. Yes. Um, well, I guess when I look at um, let's we can. I want to come back to this um, um, to where we are, but I want to. I think your solution ultimately is a uh, a fiber to every home with um, multiple ISPs operating on it, and I think that's what the the people who embrace competition envisioned, but they did not recognize the power of the incumbents to prevail and to preserve their monopoly on the wires that already existed. Uh, but I'm, you know, I, I could be missing something uh, in that argument. No, I don't think you, you're missing it. That's, that's exactly what's happened. They've defended that monopolized infrastructure that they have, and it's a, a natural monopoly. It's one that comes about through just the high cost of having to build it and maintain it. And they figure, well, we're bearing those costs. We don't want to allow others to benefit from that. And plus, we have a vertically integrated model. And that's what's really key here that's been missed is we've relied on a vertically integrated model whereby the incumbents that own the infrastructure also deliver the services over that. So allowing another provider to deliver service over deliver services over that infrastructure puts that provider in direct competition with the infrastructure owner, which is a it's a it's a policy making flaw. It wasn't really thought through very well. I mean if the if the intent was to have open access, it would have had to been a lot more aggressive than what was in the ninety six Act with the unbundling. We're in the year 2016 now, 20 years after. Um, your approach, I think, um, it, it had some very interesting uh, features to it. I think there are some people who say, well, let's just have the federal government do it. And um, I think you're, you're a bit more nuanced uh, in terms of how we should do it. And so can you describe for people how you think we should build this uh, infrastructure today? Well, I think we need to create a, a basically a whole new federal entity, and I propose it as a 501c1 nonprofit uh, that would uh, build and and uh, operate the infrastructure as public works, uh, just like we do roads and highways. I think you know that's the only way we're going to get get this t- universal because there is no interest on the part of the uh, the legacy providers to provide universal service. They use a retail cost-minimized model where they they really cherry-pick and restrict their deployments of infrastructure, that's not going to change under the current scheme. Our subsidy programs are failures because um, back when we had uh, effective subsidies, it was just telephone service only. Now, they can, uh, the telephone companies can go into a wireless service, which is more profitable, so there's not as much incentive for them to take uh, subsidies for premise wireline connections, landline connections, the cable companies aren't interested in participating in subsidies. So we don't have, see, this is what we've done historically, is if you have these high-cost infrastructure issues, you level the cost of that with a subsidy. Well, we don't have an effective subsidy mechanism. So 
I see this basically as we're at the point now where we're, we've let so much time go by with some of the caused by some of the poor decisions we made starting 20, 25 years ago that we've now reached a crisis point and we need to take more aggressive action. And that's why I proposed basically a federal, uh, federally run program and the federal government would basically put it out to bid for operators uh, or, or builders to build the infrastructure and also to provide network services and maintenance over that infrastructure on a on a uh, contract basis with the federal government, basically. But I think it, the, the problem we're having now is we're we're relying too much on just the individual private players to to do the job. And I think experience is showing that they can't. They're they're just basically trying to to fill in wherever it's profitable for them. If somebody comes in with an alternative solution like a municipal. Uh, a municipal fiber project, they'll they'll try to sandbag and delay that as much as they can, as we've seen with some of these these challenges. For example, on the getting access to the poles, um, in uh, it was at Louisville recently, and I think here in California we've had that problem with Google trying to get on the poles in California. And there's just they can go back in under all the old legacy rules and you know sandbag them and fight them and litigate it, and and, and it just isn't. We're just not going to get anywhere like that. We're just going to have this battle of. Uh, of attrition and, and diminishment and <laughs> we're not going to advance and we really need to move forward. We're, we're woefully behind where we should be and this problem is not going to get any better as time goes on. Well, we are strong fans of cooperatives, um, although I would say that from my perspective, one of the, the dangers of a national co-op is that I don't think it would be as effective in both uh, Minnesota, rural Minnesota, rural California, um, rural Arizona, rural New England, true, Appalachians. True, true, so, that's I mean, true. Yeah, that's, my, that's a good good point. And I, I, uh, my, my plan that I have at the, at the last part of my book, I talk about a regional approach to this because there are differences in different areas of the country, but with the federal government basically controlling the overall program. But yes, you've got to have some regional distinctions there because you're right, not every part of the country is going to have the same infrastructure challenges. Right. I mean, I think what you're proposing is the Rural Electrification Administration, which I, I think goes down as one of the most successful programs in the history of government. Well, yeah, we could have. We have to do something, Chris. That's my point. We don't have a plan. We don't have something to move forward with. We just have this, this constant war of words and propagandizing and it's just getting it's getting disgusting, frankly. I mean, I've been following it for for years now, and it's just it's just not moving us forward. And, and, and you know, we are better than that. We can do better than that. Um, and and this this problem, as I said, is just not going to get better. It's going to get worse as time goes on. We're twenty years behind where we should be. This really goes back to the Clinton administration. Al Gore may have claimed to have invented the internet. Whether he did or not is another question, but uh, uh, they had the vision to see this coming back then, certainly uh, the Clinton administration, but they didn't put in place the policy to move this forward. And here we are 20 years later with this huge amount of uh, access disparities, poor value. The market's not going to fix this. The government has to step in and do this. I, I certainly agree that the Clinton administration, I think, and in and, and the FCC in the second part of his administration, uh, bears um, you know a fair amount of blame for how things uh, worked out. I I like to remind people that Al Gore did not actually say that it was an error in, in reporting, actually, that um, that attached that to him, unfortunately. And there's a lot of people who recognize that he had a very important role to play in terms of 
getting the internet to where it is. But one of the things that I think I believe right now is that currently Google has been very important for demonstrating why the legacy cable and telephone companies um, are not good enough. Um, but I know that you, and, and I share your, your concern, the kind of Google approach, the market-led approach, um, is not what we need ultimately to get service to everyone. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about why. Well, because they're using, the, the as you mentioned, the market-based approach, demand-based approach, and that's not going to get service to everyone. It's not, it doesn't have that as a goal. It's, it's an investment-held company. It's got the same uh, investor return needs that the legacy cable company and telephone companies have. Um, their technology is obviously superior, but the flaw is the business model, and that's a market-based, demand-based model that won't achieve universal service. That's the major problem with it. What if I said it will? Um, it's just it's going to take us a long time, right? It's just going to go to people who can afford to pay first. Well, then I'll qualify that by saying it would take an unacceptably long period of time because <laughs> we're, already, we're already behind, well behind where we should be now. Um, Google can't do a crash program. They don't have the resources. Nobody has the resources to do a crash program other than the federal government. That's, that's, what, that's what I believe we need now because we are so far behind and we keep seeing – day after day of this problem just getting worse and worse with not having the uh, the infrastructure to deliver adequate uh, internet-based telecommunication services to Americans. One of the things that you touch on that I think other people haven't hit on as well is why it's so essential to get this out, uh, this internet service out to everyone. And I want to read another quote from your book. So you have this quote, uh, I believe comes from the uh, National uh, Information Infrastructure Initiative. I always confuse what NII means. Um, but it says, because information means empowerment, the government has a duty to ensure that all Americans have access to the resources of the information age. And I think that's really powerful. I mean, this isn't just about property values. It's not about economic development. It's, it's about something more important. And tell, tell us why it's so important to have this information available at your house. Well, because the Internet, unlike plain telephone service, can deliver a huge more, hugely more rich amount of, of, of information and communications. And it can do it on a global basis. And it's becoming a global standard of telecommunications. And I think we were seeing that, and I think the Clinton administration had the vision of that back in the early 90s. We just unfortunately didn't have the policies in, in place to bring that about. But it, everything is, we're seeing is all going to the Internet. The Internet is being called the, 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 the greatest disruptor to uh, established institutions and the economy that, that's ever come along. And it, that's, that demonstrates the power of it. It's, it's changing entire, entire industries. It's changing education. It's changing healthcare. It's changing. Uh, I wrote another book called Last Rush Hour, where I'm predicting in that book that uh, it will it'll obsolete the rush hour. The idea of, of having to commute, uh, commute to an office building in order to do your job is now obsolete because everything you need to do your job, you can do pretty much through an internet connection. I'm... I'm really curious to what extent, um, before you wrote this book, you put a lot of effort into organizing a co-op and trying to solve this problem locally. Right. Um, what from your experiences there really you know, led you to have perhaps different even opinions than you would have realized you were going to have? Well, my first inclination was was to work on a local level, you know, think globally, act locally. So I formed the co-op. Uh, what I found was, though, 
people tend to view this, and, and I think it's because they've been trained to by the telephone and cable companies, as a consumer service, not something that that a community can get together and actually provide for itself, like it may be water or power or something like that. They view this as kind of a a, a monthly service, like you might subscribe to a newspaper or a cable TV channel or whatever. It's 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 more of a retail mindset. So... I think it was very hard to get people to to shift out of the role of being on on a passive consumer uh, posture and actually working to provide the service that was needed because the market wasn't doing it for them. I think that's it was very very hard. I think to get people to realize that the market was failing them and that they had to come up, we had to come up collectively with a solution, an alternative to address that. And I just think it was a is a very tough sell in in, in and also, people had a short-term view of this issue. It's like, well, I can work on this maybe for six months, and if I don't have service at my doorstep by then, then I lose interest. So it's hard to keep people interested in, in a problem that's so big and so difficult to, to solve and takes takes a long time. It was a lot of work, actually. One of the things that, that I think I would might disagree with you on, and I'm, I'm very curious to hear how you'd respond, is that um, I, I think the federal government should have had a program available. In fact, there is a program that is theoretically available, although it would take you most of your life to deal with the paperwork um, as a single individual. Um, the Rural Utility Service through the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, which is actually the, the descendant of the Rural Electrification Administration. Um, but fundamentally, what it comes down to is that um, I, I would probably be proposing that we make it easier for locally organized co-ops to apply and just say for people who live in areas that are not interested in forming their own co-ops, well, then they can wait until they are or until someone wants to serve them or something like that. I think it's it'll come across as hard-hearted. Um, but but why would it be preferable to make sure that we solve everyone's problem uh, at once in the in a way that I think you're leaning more toward? Well, because as I mentioned earlier, I think we've reached a crisis point where we're just these, these deficiencies have have really gotten enormous, and we need we need a very quick, aggressive approach to dealing with them. I think the uh, the co-op through the RUS would just be too incremental. Be too slow. It wouldn't provide a, a solution within an acceptable period of time that would provide universal fiber to the premise. I just don't see that happening through that model. Sure. Yeah, I readily concede that that my approach would take um, uh, much longer, um, and I think that is unfortunate. I I really wish that more people were organizing previously, and I wish that when people like you took the time to effort, um, the time and effort to organize, that you didn't find so many doors slammed shut. I was surprised how, how much opposition that, or, or lack of support that was there. I mean, it was just, just amazing. And there, there was no support from the federal government. There was no support from the state government. It was just a lot of no's and bureaucracy. It was like, okay, there's no policy here to help local people help themselves. So, you know, how are we going to do it this way? And, then, and, it's, and ultimately, the, Chris, the real problem is it's just this is going to cost a lot of money. You know, I was sitting at a conference about a year ago on telehealth and I was suddenly, uh, you know, I was kind of drifting off and thought and suddenly uh, I started channeling Everett Dirksen. You might remember him. He was a, a senator from Illinois back in the 60s who was famously said a billion here and a billionaire and pretty soon we're talking about real money. <laughs> and that popped into my head and I thought, you know, he's talking about telecommunications infrastructure. And at the same time, that popped into my head, the idea that telecommunications as interstate infrastructure, which is what the telephone network was, 
uh, fundamentally describes telecommunications. It's interstate. It's not local. It needs it needs to be interstate. It needs to connect s- states. It needs to connect the United States to the rest of the world. It's 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 that important in terms of a communication medium. I don't think we can we can we can't solve this basically one neighborhood, one municipality, one state at a time. This this really needs a federal approach. I think a lot of people tend to assume that this is something that's going to be very expensive, and, and your Dirksen quote is appropriate. Um, but I, I, I think if you looked at the cost, it's probably in, it's less than $50 billion. It's more than $20 billion probably to do the sorts of things you're talking about. That's kind of the range of credible estimates of building the wall that Donald Trump is advocating for our uh, southern border, and that is taken very seriously. And I don't think that's going to improve our economy one bit. Whereas, you know, you know, this sort of approach that you're taking. So, to some extent, money in, in D.C. is 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 about priorities. Um, it's not just about the size of the the check. I think it's about priorities. Certainly, that's that's what the elected officials do. They decide what what is prioritized for appropriations. I think that this one definitely needs to be a priority. And whether it's fifty or two hundred billion, as I propose, it has to. It's going to take serious money. We can't throw, you know, two billion a year for the next five years, like the FCC just did for the USF uh, conversion to to internet. I don't think that's going to be enough enough money. It's going to be too incremental, too slow. We just need a much more aggressive, intentional approach to this because it's. I think part of the problem is is we we have been too timid, and 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 doing so, we've just made it worse. One of the th- the ironies, I think, is that if we were able to push for the solution that you're describing, I think that the people most opposed to it would be representatives from the most rural areas. Um, when you look at the people who um, who are railing against more government involvement in this uh, in this sector or or more broadly, I think they're being elected by those people now. I've certainly seen a sense that people who are electing, um, you know, people like Marsha Blackburn, they seem to be um, wanting better internet a- access. So maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I suspect that our biggest challenge in getting your approach through would be people representing rural districts. Well, I don't know if it'd be rural districts that would be the challenge, but I, I, your point about incumbent uh, political influences is, is implied in that, and it's very well taken because they have had a huge amount of influence in terms of delaying. And I think that's been their main strategy is to postpone the future on this because they're under-resourced to to bring us the future, but they don't want someone else doing it either because it's their monopolistic asset. So they're going to defend it and and throw up roadblocks and, and delay, and that's exactly what they're doing. I think, though, politically, Chris, we're approaching a political tipping point where this problem is getting so bad that um, – the incumbent influence is going to start to be devalued. The uh, they build up a huge reservoir of public disdain and ill will, and their their elective the public's elected officials are beginning to see that, and it's going to get to the point where anybody who is, I think we're at a tipping point or just about at one where where any of these elected officials or or people running for office are supported by these incumbents that are basically postponing the nation's telecommunications future are going to pay a political price for, for doing so and selling out their their constituents, which just a lot of them have done that. And we just saw that happen, I think, last week in Tennessee where there was a, uh, a vote on a, a bill that would allow 
uh, municipalities to expand their their service areas, and the incumbents fought it tooth and nail and prevailed. And uh, so you got people outside of those existing service areas saying, "Well, what about me and my chopped liver?" Well. Yeah, they are now, but at some point that political dynamic I think is going to shift, and I think we're we're kind of getting there. And I think the current political environment that we're in, where we see candidates like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders getting a lot of support, reflects a lot of disdain towards establishment politics. And I think that's really what we're seeing at work here, where these incumbents can basically buy off legislators to delay the future in their own interests. Well, I think that's uh, it's a it's a fascinating formulation. Um, to delay the future. That's exactly what they've done. And um, I don't think people often describe it that way, but that is a, a very good way of saying it. Um, can you tell people where they can uh, read your, your uh, book? It's on a, uh, a site called bookbaby.com. They can just go there. That's the publisher. And there's a multiple, a number of links to various retail uh, outlets. It's available at most any electronic outlet like it's a kindle or a, it's an electronic book i should say a pdf it's not available in print um it's in kindle format it's on apple uh, ibooks and it's on a number of other uh book retailers in on, in, in online format to download to a, a tablet i wrote it intentionally for tablets and, and i wrote a small book too it's only about uh, 100 pages so it won't it won't take people long to to, to read it. and i did that intentionally because what I've been reading is that people prefer shorter books nowadays because there's just so much to read out there that, it, you know, people want a book they can read in one or two sittings. And that's exactly what I was targeting that towards. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. That was Chris and Fred Pilot, blogger and author of Service Unavailable, America's Telecommunications Infrastructure Crisis. Check out Fred's blog at eldotelecom.blogspot.com and download his ebook at bookbaby.com. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter, where the handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you, Kathleen Martin, for the song Player vs. Player, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 196 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Oh.